0: A question for you as we start, what does it mean to be a follower? Now, if you're a follower of a TV series or a book series or a magazine series, what does that mean? Are you a follower of those things if you've only read one or watched one rather than the whole series? I think we'd say no, that wasn't the case. You have watched them all if you're a follower. And furthermore, you troll the internet, searching for further release dates and more information. I'm sure you will have all seen, heard, maybe even secretly participated in the Harry Potter series when it was released, and lining up at all the bookstores, people eagerly waiting for it to come out, or even Twilight. Maybe you were part of the uh, street fights over uh, people arguing whether they are on Team Edward, or team whoever that other guy was. Harold. <laughs> what about if you're a follower of sports? A follower of a particular team. What does that mean? Are you a follower if you don't know how the game works? If you don't understand the rules, like offside for soccer. A total mystery. Are you a follower <laughs> if you only watch now and then? No. You know the rules. You watch the games live if you can, on TV if you can't. You own the gear in the right colours, of course. And you are physically, if you are able to, uh, physically do so, you play it. You may even seek to convert others to your team. But you're you're not a follower if you do all those things, but even internally hate the game. You just do it because your family does it. That's not a follower. You love it. You live it. To be a follower then calls for more than just a token effort on the outside. It requires in a way that we live for it, at least to some degree. If you are a follower of Christ, what does that mean? We have been reminded over the last few weeks something of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Something of what life looks like to be a man or a woman that says, this is my Lord. We've heard, judge not, lest you be judged. The life of a disciple of Jesus is not one whereby we become lords or kings over other people, is it? They're judges where we get to make up the rules and reside over them able to condemn people according to our own standards. Instead, his disciples are people that continue to sit under God's law along with everybody else as our authority in a position of humility. We've heard, ask, and it will be given to you. The life of a disciple of Jesus is one of asking And being given a life of dependence and trust upon the grace of the Lord. And to willingly submit to his perfect wisdom in knowing what a good gift is when we pray for it. In this week's passage, we see something more of the obedient life in the words we heard read only a little earlier of doing unto others of walking a narrow road, of being alert to false prophets. These things bring more understanding of what it means to live for God, not merely as Sunday believers. They describe instead a lifetime of faith and obedience upon the, uh, faith, obedience and dependence upon the work of Jesus. And I pray that we'll see something of the importance of that this morning but the risk is always with preaching words like this is that we would see commands separate from the rest of the gospel context that we would receive these instructions from Jesus and forget the greater message of grace that we live in this is the life that we have in Jesus i think we only sang of it in the first song we uh, the second song we had this morning Ray said how do we live but being able to, in the gospel, walk with him? Not a life that we have to earn or deserve. Let's pray this morning before we go any further than that we might hear God's word and have our eyes and ears and hearts opened to the life that we have in him. Heavenly Father, Lord, we so quickly and easily hear good words out of context and forgotten. Lord, I pray this morning that as we hear your word, your encouragement, Lord, in how to live a life for you, how to walk with you, you as our master, but someone that's encouraged us to walk a life with you, Lord, to be able to do that without without pride, without Lord, a desire to walk independently, Lord, without seeing these instructions that you have given us as a way to walk away from you, help us to hear them as the ways in which we can abide near you reside in your heart and delight in the life that we have even now in jesus name amen as we take our verses this morning in matthew we're going to take them one spoonful at a time so first verse 12 in everything do to others what you would have them do to you For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, did you know that Jesus was not the first person to come up with this phrase? In fact, Rabbi Hillel, we heard him speak and offer his comments on divorce a few weeks ago, was recorded to say something very similar first. He said, Do not do to others as you would not want done to yourself. The negative side of what jesus is saying if you don't like the idea of being stolen from don't steal if you're not fond of the notion of being murdered don't murder it is a call in a way towards inaction towards other people it covers the very bare minimum just don't be a horrible person and you'll be fine But Jesus says it a little differently, and he's the only one recorded to say it this way, in this positive light, in whatever you do, do to others as you would have done to yourself. This is a far more open-ended saying. It calls for the disciples of Jesus to be more than just not bad neighbours. It asks of them and us to be the best and the most proactive neighbours that we can, the most loving neighbours that we can, and actively look for opportunities to give and to serve and to really love other people. This command draws Christians to others. When we are to do this, when are we to do this, though? And how? In everything, it says. In everything you do, it becomes and is to be the underpinning of all our actions. It affects the why of everything and informs the how of everything. Why do I do the things that I do? What is my motivation for work, at work, at home, when I rest? If my motivation to do these things is to serve other people as I would be served, how then can I do this to satisfy that? Now, this passage, of course, is not telling us to give other people every hope and dream that they have. To fulfil the wish of only one of my children would bankrupt us and fill my house with ponies. (laughs) We are called or we are being called to do to others really as we just heard last week, as the Father does to us. If we believe what he is doing is good, then we are to do that to others. We have only to look at last week's message to see that wonderful command, that wonderful model. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And you remember, I'm sure, that this doesn't mean that whatever we pray, we receive. I have so many unanswered prayers, especially when fishing. So many. It doesn't mean, he doesn't mean that we are to uh, to give whatever the other people want. And he doesn't give us what we want. But he gives us all that is good to have. We are called in Ephesians a people that are blessed, not just a little. We are blessed with being chosen, with being redeemed, with being forgiven, adopted, sealed with the Holy Spirit, and more. We are rich people. What we have to give to others is what he has given to us in abundance. Things birthed of these gifts. At times that may meal, a meal mean a meal that has been lovingly prepared. Maybe a lawn being mowed for somebody else. Help with hanging a new gutter. I've received that help. A chat a text, at other times a listening ear and silence, a prayer or encouragement. Still other times it means working hard for other people, being faithful, enduring, forgiving tempers and ill-spoken words, withholding judgment. Sometimes it means honesty and a gentle word of rebuke. But more often than not, it is the giving of these things in a spirit of grace. Because what is deserved is sometimes judgment, but what we should give is a good gift. Don't we in the church know what it is like to receive good gifts when we deserved judgment? When we who sinned against God were offered forgiveness and justification at the cost of Jesus' own life. Now, this saying of Jesus is, is known beyond the church and has been quoted often. The golden rule of do unto others is a wonderful, lovely moral standard that we can use to hold other people up to. But outside of the Lord, it is just a weak attempt, a mime, at the command that is being given to the disciples. How can anyone follow this command without all the good gifts that the Heavenly Father gives? They cannot understand the cost of it, let alone endure it. It is a costly command. It costs in pouring out yourself to other people. It is a sacrificial command. For when we give, we will likely not receive in return. Too often it seems that when the disciples of Jesus followed this command, in fact, what they return, was returned to them was not love, but enmity. We've only to look at Christian history to see this, the innumerable ways that Christians have been persecuted unto death Because they served other people as the Lord would have them. This cost is too much to bear without the father. It is like emptying a cup of water in the desert. It's just a drop. At least that would be the case if we didn't have the father's good gifts For with him, it's the difference between emptying a cup as opposed to emptying a hose with the tap turned on. We give out of the flowing abundance of God's good gifts for us. And it's a reflection of how God has dealt with us. How he gives good gifts even while we are enemies. Now, Jesus says that this command to give and to do unto others, is the sum of the law and the prophets. Now, later in Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees come to Jesus to test him against the law. And the question they ask him is, what is the greatest of the commandments? And his response is very similar to what we hear this morning Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, Jesus says. The law of God is given that we might live in accordance with the heart of God in our new lives. So then, if this is the sum of the law, then loving others, the love of others, is the heart of God. We are to love him first, for from him comes every good thing, and then love others. Spurgeon wrote, Do not let this golden rule, remain merely as a record in this book. But take it out into your daily life. If we did all act to others as we would that others should act to us, how different would the lives of many men become? Ours would be a happy world if the law of Christ were the law of England or the law of all the nations. But as Jesus says in our next passage, to live according to the law, to live according to the Lord's commandment and be obedient to him is a very narrow life compared to the rest of the world. Yet it leads to life rather than destruction. Now, when you hear these verses of a narrow road read... How can you not immediately think of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? A man called Christian travelling down the road, the difficult road of life to the celestial city. Even after visiting the cross and having the burden of sin fall from his shoulders and roll down the hill into the empty tomb, he still has a road to walk to get to life. And it was by no means an easy walk. There were many temptations and many trials that beset him, seeking to throw him from his destination. And one such trial was the hill of difficulty, of which I'll read just a small portion. Setting the scene, Christian arrives at the base of the hill with two other men that he has met earlier. Their names are formality and hypocrisy. I beheld them, that they all went on, uh, that they all went on till they came to the foot of the hill difficulty, at the bottom of which was a spring. There were also in the same place two other ways, besides that which came straight from the gate. One turned to the left hand, and the other to the right at the bottom of the hill." But the narrow way lay right up the hill. And the name of the going up the side of the hill is called difficulty. Christian now went to the spring. Isaiah forty nine ten. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat them down. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. And Christian drank thereof to refresh himself and began to go up the hill, saying, The hill though high I covet to ascend, the difficulty will not me offend, for I perceive the way of life lies here. Come, pluck up heart, let's neither faint nor fear. Better though difficult the right way to go, than wrong though easy, where the end is woe. The other two also came to the foot of the hill, but when they saw that the hill was steep and high and that there were two other ways to go, and supposing also that these ways might lead meet again with that up which Christian went on the other side of the hill, therefore they resolved to go in these ways. Now the name of one of those ways was danger and the name of the other, destruction. So the one took the way which was called danger, which led him into a great wood. And the other took directly up the way to destruction, which led him into a wide field filled with dark mountains, where he stumbled and fell and rose no more. I looked then after Christian to see him going up the hill where I perceived that he fell from running to going and from going to clambering upon his hands and knees because the steepness of the place. And shortly after ascending the hill of difficulty, Christian meets with two men running back down the hill called Timorous and Mistrust. And they tell Christian that they are fleeing the path as it leads only to greater difficulty greater fear and christian's response is small but worth worth reading you make me afraid he says but where else shall i flee to if i go back to my country that is prepared for fire and brimstone and i shall certainly perish here the perish there i must venture If I can get to the celestial city, I am sure to be safe there. To go back is nothing but death. To go forward is fear of death and life everlasting beyond it. I will yet go forward. Living for God is not a choose-your-own-adventure novel. I stole that one from Ray. It is a singular and narrow road. And it doesn't change its width the whole time we're on it. We've just heard the sum of the law, love God and love others. Now, quite a few years ago, Grant Thorpe asked me, what are you going to do with your life? And in my mid-twenties, I answered, as we all do, I don't know. And his response was this. You've already been told 90% of it. Love God, love others. One day I hope to say something wise that people will quote. (laughs) He's, He's dead on, isn't he? Love God and love others. That is the width of the path that we tread. And it is the path that it says leads to life. It leads to life. Sacrificing of yourself and drawing upon the father leads to life. Later, we will speak on wolves, those that see others as food for themselves. Yet here... We have a saviour that not only calls for the sacrifice of our bodies for others, but as we remember every time we have communion, gives of his own body to bring people to life. Anything else leads to destruction, it says. We saw that in the destination of Christians' friends. Every other path. But this difficult one leads to destruction. Only in living for God by his narrow way is their life. This road cannot be walked by doing what is right according to our own judgment. It is a life by which we submit our understanding and obedience to the judgment of God, submitting to what he says is a good life what is good and leads to life, and what he says is bad and will lead to destruction. But narrow is also not the only description given to this path. It's also described as difficult. And John Bunyan knew this well as he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, for he himself was in prison while he wrote it. Because he walked the narrow road and would not step off of it, He held church services out of the control of what was at the time a corrupt church in England. He wouldn't compromise on gospel living, of doing for others what he wished would be done for himself. This is a man that knew the difficulty of walking the narrow path and of living for God. Yet despite his suffering, he found great hope even while in prison. Because the road leads to life. Joy he had, even in the difficulty of it, so much so that he writes a book while incarcerated to cur- encourage others to follow that exact same road. We too should remember who it is that's speaking this passage Jesus. He knows this path better than any. And though at this time of Matthew's gospel, he's not yet gone to the cross. He knows what lies before him. And he's in fact the first person to walk this road to its end. And he speaks, I believe, from the very real human experience of the difficulty of walking this narrow road, the suffering that can be endured from numerous fronts. Suffering from persecution. Persecution. At the hands of those who walk the road of destruction. Possibly even as Bunyan experienced from people within the church. People that call them call other believers narrow-minded. Judgmental. Because they will not abide with them in their sin. Sharing it with them. They will not compromise on gospel living. Suffering also from... Sin, the sin of our own flesh, as we seek to be obedient in whatever we do. We are called to offer up our own bodies as a living sacrifice in obedience and love for God rather than pursuing our own natural desires. More than anything, there is suffering because faith in God and His ways is a life that is difficult. Faith is a fight, Paul says. From 2 Timothy 4, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Fighting for what? Not for performance. Not works. We don't walk this road to earn salvation, but because we trust in God that he will and has given us all that we need to endure the road of life. It is a fight to trust that in Jesus, as we heard earlier, there is rest for the weary. It's a fight to trust during the difficult times that the life we have in him is easy and light. It is a fight against our own wiring, wiring that Piper John Piper says, leaves us thinking, I'm not going to be dependent upon you. I'm going to be dependent on me. My wisdom, my judgment, my desires, my strength. But Matthew 18 says that unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom. We fight to have faith like dependent children. Isn't that the difficulty? But it is hard to be on a narrow road that calls for us to be weak and like children. So what, we, what are we to do to endure the difficulties of the road? Before ascending the hill of difficulty, Christian turns to the stream of living water and drinks thereof, That is, he turns to the word of the Lord and asks the Father to provide all that he needs to endure it. He ensures that the tap is turned on and that he is full to overflowing with the goodness and the good gifts of the Lord. And he fixes his eyes on the promises yet to come and the hope that lies ahead of him of life everlasting. A place where there'll be no more fear at the end of the road. But sadly, this narrow road is not a road that is, is well trod. There are not many who take it. When I was baptised, a little old lady, whom I have no recollection, I didn't even know who she was uh, and still don't remember, made for me and gave me a gift. She made a small stitch work and framed it with one of Tozer's sayings written in it, something she thought would be wise to keep close to my heart. Pay no heed to passing religious vogue. Go back to the grassroots. Open your heart, search the scriptures, bear your cross and follow your Lord. The masses are always wrong. In every generation, the number of the righteous is small. Be sure that you are among them. To whom are we to look for in how to live? To the masses? Do we take our indication of what is good and right in life from the number of people that are doing it? No, the masses are always wrong. There are few who walk the narrow road. There are many that walk the road to destruction. And we must ask, seek and knock upon the Lord, search his scriptures and listen to the words of everyone with discernment until proven true by him. And we receive this very warning from Jesus in the, next, the last part of the passage. Beware, Jesus says. Beware and watch out for false prophets. These people that look like every other believer. Dressed in sheep's clothing. What comes to my mind is that image of a cartoon wolf from Looney Tunes. Who's just got a sheep's rug thrown over the top of him. And he believes that he is the epitome of stealth. Yet it is painfully obvious to every observer that it is a wolf wearing a rug. Or perhaps even thinking of Little Red Riding Hood visiting her grandmother, who's actually a wolf. But Little Red Riding Hood can see the signs. What big eyes you have, grandmother. What big ears, what big teeth. This is not the case with a false prophet. Their wolfish nature is not obvious to see. And we would be mistaken to believe that people, uh, false prophets, are easy to see at a quick glance. You've only to visit Mobalong Prison and worship with brothers there to realise you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. The false prophets sing our songs. They attend our services, they serve in ministry, and speak as those that have authority to lead us on to God. Next week's passage will talk about these people as people that perform miracles, that expel demons, that prophesy, and yet the Lord doesn't know them. Yet they walk the path of destruction. And I suspect a path, a portion of the path that is closest to our narrow path. So close it is hard to tell them apart at times, but their words encourage us to relax the narrow way. That living for God doesn't require such attentiveness, awareness, or a hot pursuit of holy living. That the road to life is broader than you think. You don't need to self-sacrifice. Think about yourself for a little bit. They encourage us to be simple and lazy and presumptive. To not be disciplined or alert, aware that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And they would encourage you to sleep in his presence. And all the while, encourage us also to walk towards his den. Be aware. Watch out, Jesus says. 1 Peter says that we are to discipline ourselves, to keep alert. Do not be passive in our discernment of what we are hearing, but be active and have watchful minds. Discerning of our leaders if they are producing good fruit or bad fruit. What is the effect of their ministry, their words upon those that hear it? Does it promote good spirituality, prayerfulness and holiness in the people of God? Does it encourage them along the narrow path or seek to lure them from it? Now, a few weeks ago, we heard a strong word from Jesus. Do not judge. But here we're being called by him to discern. Now I must apologise. Last week a brother spoke to me gently about a mistake I made in that sermon, Judge Not. I emphasised too much how we are to judge well or discern well as we hear in this message. But not enough on the do not judge with our own hypocritical standards. And it's important to hear the negative emphasis because here when Jesus is encouraging us to discern according to his standards, there must be a tension held between the two. A tension that should slow us down in jumping the gun, in deeming someone to be a thorn bush or a thistle bush with no good fruit. Discernment that is careful and a slow examining of the Word and what is being observed and done first by examining ourselves in humility before looking at others. Not a quick decision based on personal preference, but an awareness and alertness that there is false teaching And once done, there's no indication, aside from removing them from the church, that we are to condemn them. It's not our role. Even in our passage that speaks of the burning of any tree that doesn't bear good fruit, it says nothing about us being the ones that do the burning. It says that their judgment comes at the end of the path. Destruction. What is it that we are to be occupied with? Loving God and loving others. There is a hope on this side of life for an opportunity of repentance and reconciliation to God and his people. That even someone that has spouted false words would turn and live. Isn't this the grace and the mercy of God? That we ourselves have received. And wouldn't we wish to receive it if we were in their shoes? We must be aware and alert of false prophets as followers of the Lord. I wonder if you have heard this morning the goodness of God in all of this. Now, Jesus instructs his disciples in how to remain on the road of life, living for him, abiding close to his heart. Do you hear his desire to have us with him in eternity? Do you hear how he shares with us the joy of his own ministry in being able to lovingly sacrifice for others as he did? Do you see how he teaches and how he equips the saints to live life in his grace? Let's pray and give thanks. Heavenly Father, we come before you giving thanks for your word and to pray as we heard Spurgeon say earlier, Lord, that these would not remain words on a page. But, Father, that we would take up, not a command, Lord, not a law that brings destruction, but take up the life that we have in you. To know that it gives life, even in the doing of it. Lord, that when we are feeling the difficulty of a life of faith, When we are feeling empty, having poured ourselves out to ask and to seek and to knock Lord, to know that you are the one that fills us up, that you are the one that gives all good gifts for us to simply pass on to others. And Lord, we we should be aware and I pray that we have an awareness of false prophets. And Lord, I'm also mindful that we hear many words, not just from within the church, many words that would have us be more concerned with ourselves than with other people. Lord, from within our culture, we pray, I pray, Father, that we would be a people of your word, ruled our entire lives, ruled by what you have said is the way to life and to place our hope and our joy, Lord, totally in your basket, to live for you, to follow you and you alone. Where we stray, Father, I pray that you would guide us back onto the path and forgive us, Lord for wanting to be independent of you, even for a moment, for being listening to false words, even for a moment. We give thanks for your grace and pray that we continue to rejoice in all that you have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.